The reason why I thought this would be an interesting topic for us to talk about is because, first of all, a lot of what we talk about as a church in studies like this tend to become topics. So we get together and we pick a topic. Let's talk about the church. Or we pick a topic. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Or let's talk about the end times or whatever it might be. And they become topics. And we grow in our knowledge. And we can thumb our way around the Bible a little quicker. And we can teach and dialogue and maybe even debate a little more effectively. But it seems to me that there's more to studying the word of God than that. So here's what I want to suggest tonight. That when we talk about the church, and this is something you've probably thought a little bit about, but I want to kind of bring it forward at the very beginning of this class. I was just thinking about this. The church, can we talk about the church? The church, if you think about it, really is the story of what God is doing in the world. And therefore, because you're part of the church, it's the story of who you are, if you think about it that way. So the church is, it's the story of what? I'm going to use this theta, short form, I'll do this several times for God, of what God is doing in the world. And as I've said, therefore, it's the story of who you are. So who you are. Well, if I was sitting in your chair and I heard that, I'd be like, okay, this is a relevant class for me to be part of. Because I want to know what God is doing in the world. I want to be part of what God is doing in the world. And I want to know who I am. I want to know what God has for me in this short life of mine. I want to be part of God's plan. I want to be part of God's purpose. And because I want to be part of all that, I want to be part of the church. And because I'm part of the church, I want to understand properly what the church is, how the church is supposed to function, how the church is supposed to operate, and so forth. So here's some topics I want to talk about under the heading of the church. We're going to try to understand the biblical notion of a people of God throughout all time. So we'll do a little talk about the continuities and the discontinuities between Israel and the church. We're going to look at Jesus' calling of disciples, Jesus' understanding of the church. We'll examine some telling descriptions of the church in the New Testament. We'll try to understand how the universal church and the local church match up or don't match up. What is the mission of the church? That's kind of important. What's the structure of the church and what's my place in the church? So those are kind of some things I'm going to talk about under the heading of the church. Yes, Dorothy. Wow, remember, I could never remember. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, when you say the church, do you mean this, like a particular religion, or do you mean Christians? So we're going to talk about Christians, what we call the universal church. Okay. Historically, this was called the Catholic small c means universal church, and then the local assembly, or the local church. So this is an expression of the universal church. This is the local church. Some people think they're mutually exclusive. Some people think they're one and the same. We'll try to understand that a little bit better. Okay, so let's think about the Holy Spirit now. So again, we could talk at length, and we're going to spend some time doing this. 
We're gonna, we could talk about the Holy Spirit as a topic. Let's just make this an academic exercise and we'll talk about the Holy Spirit. I'll parse some words for you. We'll do some word studies. We'll do some cross-references and you'll go away with more knowledge. Well, that would be somewhat valuable. But I think there's a little more to the Holy Spirit than that. The Holy Spirit, really we could say, is the one that makes this thing possible. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes the church possible. And if you think of God's manifest presence in the church as a wedge, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit really is the sharp edge of the wedge. Like he's the one that we're encountering on a daily basis. He's the one, his job, to use rough language, is to do the encouraging and the rebuking and the convicting and the converting and the regenerating and all that kind of stuff. So he's like the sharp point of God's presence being manifested in our lives. So the Holy Spirit is the one that makes the church possible. That's kind of a cool thought. And as we live life together in the church, the Holy Spirit, we'll just say, I'll use the word manifest. If you'd rather use the word obvious, that's fine too. Whatever works for you to help you remember the concept. The Holy Spirit, it really is the manifest presence of God in our lives. Dorothy, as individual Christians and collectively as the body of Christ. Okay? So this is important. So what is worship then? Worship, we could also study that as a topic, but I think we'd be shortchanging ourselves. So we're going to study the topic of worship in Scripture. But worship, we could say, is what we do in response. This is an important word. A very important word. It means after something has happened. It's in response to what God is doing. We don't worship to try to get God's attention. We don't do that. We worship, it's what we do in response to God, the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And when I say our, I mean corporate our and individual our in our lives. Because we want to bring God glory. So, here's another way of putting it. If you're writing a theological dictionary and you came to the word worship, maybe you should write in there this definition. It's our mission. Really, it's our mission. Our mission is to bring God glory. How do we know that? Because God's mission is to bring himself glory. John 4.24 says we worship the Lord. God is spirit. We worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. So, uh, I want our conversations in this class to be partly 
what we would historically call as theologians a study in systematic theology. What we mean by that is we want to look at the various references in the scripture that pertain to these three topics, kind of systematize them, compare scripture with scripture and try to understand certain things about what God has said. But I also want this to be a spiritual exercise in uh, spiritual growth and formation. And that's why I'm framing it up this way. Very important. So here are just some observations I wrote down. I wrote uh, three observations down that are in part uh, motivators for me to teach this stuff. Number one, our view of the church is more often shaped by sociology, human constructs, and denominationalism. What church did you grow up in? What church did you grow up in? What church did you grow up in? Our past is not our past if it continues to affect our present. And so many of us are affected positively or negatively by our past. So the positive, we want to keep that. But many of us have been shaped by a particular tradition or lack thereof about what a church is. I'll just use the word denominationalism, even if you come from a denomination that doesn't like the word denomination. Okay? And many of us do. Technically, we're not a denomination, but we'll just use the rough language. So it's often shaped by sociology and denominationalism rather than scripture. So my desire in life, and I think it's all of your desires you wouldn't be here, even though it can be hard, is to try to let scripture shape our view of the church instead of allowing sociology or denominational backgrounds to shape our view of the church. And don't kid yourself, you come to church with known conscious and unknown some subconscious expectations of what the church is. You have a certain expectation about how a pastor should act, how people in the church should act, what a church building should look like, what churches should give themselves to, what churches should give their resources to, how a service or meeting or liturgy, whatever word your tradition borrows, what that looks like. Okay, we're, we're hugely affected by all of that. And it can be positive and it can be negative. So I, I think we should always be in a state of reformation. The reformation shouldn't have been something that just happened 500 years ago and came to a crashing halt. We're always in a state of reformation. We're always hopefully positively and biblically, pardon my word, evolving to become closer and closer to what the Bible teaches about Scripture. And I hope no matter your age or background, you genuinely are open to the Holy Spirit continuing to teach you what God's Word says about the church and your place in it. Because chances are a few of us are wrong. Secondly, our view of the Holy Spirit, in my view and in my experience, this might have been different 500 years ago, but in my day, is probably more driven by a desire to experience Him or not experience him because we're afraid of that in order to get a boost. Now that means that when we study the Holy Spirit, I just want you to think about your mindset. We often study the Holy Spirit because we're trying to figure out, oh, what can he do for me? How can I encounter him a little more so I get a boost? And I'm not really sure that's why God exists to give me a boost. 
I think he probably exists for more lofty reasons than that. So, what I want to do is study scripture with you so that we can allow the Holy Spirit to do everything he wants to do in our lives and in our church. Let him do what he wants to do. Let's not say this is what we want him to do. We have this preconceived notion, this is what the Holy Spirit should be doing. Well, how about we let the Holy Spirit tell us what he wants to do? And I think the scriptures is ripe with examples and teachings that help us to understand what the Spirit really wants to do in our lives. But sometimes we gloss over them because we're just looking for what we want from the Holy Spirit. Okay, third observation. Our view of worship is more often driven by stylistic preferences or themes or culture than a vertical encounter with the living God who is holy and who is righteous and who wants to be glorified through us, which in no way, shape, or form diminishes him. He doesn't want to be glorified because he has a low self-esteem and needs you to help him feel good about himself. The fact that he calls us to glorify him is, in fact, life's greatest gift to you. Your salvation is not life's greatest gift. The fact that you get to glorify God as a result of having been saved is life's greatest gift to you. So this is a vertical view of Scripture rather than a horizontal view of Scripture. Lots of churches, the horizontal view of Scripture is this. God is awesome because he saves people. Well, that's true, but there's something more awesome about God. He saves people, so we get the privilege of encountering, acknowledging, and bringing him glory. That's a vertical view of the Christian life. And if you can sort of turn that light bulb on in your head now, the earlier the better, it will literally alter your, your whole Christian experience. And it will alter the life of a church. Because there's a lot of churches out there doing a really good job preaching salvation. But actually, it's just all about getting ourselves fixed up. And they don't then help people to understand, okay, now the reason why you're saved is because God's on a mission to bring glory to himself. And he does that by making disciples to call people into relationship with himself and to see things that unbelievers are, are not even thinking about. So that's really cool. I just find that really helpful. So then what I'm going to challenge us to do is let's grow as worshipers and not just... We don't want you to come here to validate or to challenge your stylistic preferences. So this is not a... Let's talk about worship so some of you can be like, yeah, I knew our style was right. Or others of you are like, I'm so ticked off at this guy. It's not what it's about, because styles change, but God doesn't. Okay, So, write this down. The Bible cures us of all these ills. Bad view of church, bad view of the Holy Spirit, bad view of worship, or a gentler personality might say an inadequate view of any of these three things. (laughs) okay anybody want to leave okay you'll stay rich okay i wrote this stuff mostly for you anyway okay so what i want to start 
by doing, we're going to talk about the church. So we'll spend about two weeks on the church, two weeks on the Holy Spirit, and two weeks on worship, but we're liable to kind of integrate some of this stuff as we go. And you're welcome to ask questions, but I'm quite comfortable lecturing as well. Okay, so this is how I teach. Um, we're going to start off with some definitions of the church. So the first topic we're going to look at is uh, let's define the church. Okay, now this is where I do want you to help me. If someone were to ask you, define the church, or we want to leave room for some uh, bad examples without embarrassing people either. So if you're aware of definitions of the church, whether you agree with them or not, let's kind of throw some of them out for the rest of us to hear. So when you think of the church, defining the church, what have you heard about what the church is? Like synonyms or definitions? Bride of Christ. Bride of Christ. Called out ones. Body of Christ. Some building somewhere. somewhere. Sorry? A social club. Yeah. When people gather in his name, you can have church in your house. Okay. When people gather in his name, church in your house. I think I saw. Sorry? A hospital. Yeah, we've heard that one. Yeah. Glenn, I think you had your hand up. Okay, the building on Spring Garden Road, the only church, right? The only true church, of course. Yeah. A sanctuary? Okay. Yeah, any others? Place of worship. Okay. Okay, good. Okay, good. So anyone else... Want to throw something in before I close the door? All right. A place where you share your testimony. Okay, very good. All right. So many of you have shared things that are quite accurate, in fact. And it's a, it's, it's a temptation for us when we come up with definitions to want to be reductionistic. We've got to pack it all into a phrase or a sentence and just kind of write out the definition, and it's a definition for all time. And... One of the classic definitions, which um, has been offered, is called out once. So there's a word, looks like this. Okay. In Greek, it's a Greek word. And in English, English letters is E K K L A S I A. And the reason why I show you this is because this word that's translated in the New Testament as church comes from two words. And this ek is the word out. And this comes from the verb kaleo, which means called. And this is why when you hear people try to come up with their one-sentence definition of what the church is, you'll often hear them say it's the called out once. But that's not particularly accurate. It's not that it's untrue, but it's a completely insufficient, reductionistic definition of the church. Now, before I tell you why that's the case, I want you to think about this a little bit. 
if we say the church, what's the definition of a church? Well, it's the called out ones. Why, why do you think, just, and maybe you've never thought about this before, why do you think that might be an inadequate definition of the church? Well, one of the main purposes of the church would be to be calling more in. Okay. So if you're already the called out, that pretty well eliminates the whole idea of calling people in. Okay, so that could be a conclusion. I haven't really thought about that before, but that could, that could very well be true. Why else? Otto? Okay. Okay, it's, it's, it has a, a ring of finality to it. Now, it should have a ring of finality to it when, it's, when we think of our position or our status, but maybe not when it comes to our mission. Another, thing, another way of thinking about this is it's, it, it could be taken as a negative definition. It's like who we no longer are. We used to be in the world, but now we're not. And so it's a definition that doesn't really have any definition in it. It's just telling you who you aren't, so it could be taken that way. Anything else? Yeah? I don't know, I'm just having a hard time like, picturing inviting someone to a church who's never been to church, and we're the called out ones, and they're just like, well, I don't know if I'm called out, and I'm still singled out. Okay, yeah. Okay, good. Okay, another, another problem with defining it this way is it focuses on salvation. Now, I'm all into salvation. I'm a preacher of the gospel, okay? <laughs> kind of important. But it doesn't help us to understand mission. So remember I said earlier, there's the horizontal and the vertical. Now, in the horizontal, it's God saved you, Jesus saved you, you're a Christian, now you're part of the church, you're a called out one. But it doesn't help this guy to understand this. Positionally, it does. But actively, it doesn't. Now, even if that wasn't all true, the reason why this is not really the right way to handle Scripture, there's a really fancy term for those of you that study grammar. I'll give it to you. This is called the etymological root fallacy, which means when you look at the etymology the origin, the background, the meaning of a word, and its roots. People often try to take a word, and they're like, well, in the original, it means out-called. So that means the church is the called-out ones. Okay. Well, uh, a cat tail could be the appendage on the back end of a feline. Could be a whip, or could be a bulrush that grows in the ditch. And only one of those situations is cat, tail, helpful for defining what, how the word is being used, right? And the other situations, is it's being used in a different way. So we, we need to kind of set aside this tradition that a lot of people have when they're looking at Greek words. They look at where the word came from, break it down into its parts, and they're like, well, this is what it means. That's not how language works. This is how language works. The meaning of a word is determined by its context. Period. So, you have to study the word in its contexts. And there are many in the Bible. And context de determines the way words are used. Really, dictionaries are kind of humorous. 
Because dictionaries try to look at culture, like let's say they look at our culture. Let's say the only people in the world that spoke English is people in this room. And Maureen's writing a dictionary. So she goes around, she listens, she looks at our writing, she looks at how we use words, and she's like, okay, I notice. So whenever we use the word, this particular word, cattail, it always means the appendage in the back end of a feline. So she writes her definition in. But the problem with dictionaries is they try to lock down meaning And it's like, well, no one's ever allowed to use the word any other way now. This is like the only way you can ever use it. And that's not how language works. Language is always changing and morphing. We know there's words we use in 2017 English that we didn't use 10 years ago. I mean, you're all old enough to know that. And there's words that were used 40 years ago that are kind of out of style and others that stick. So usage and context determines the meaning of a word. And when we look at the word ecclesia in the Bible, it's not really talking so much about called out ones. Better definitions would be things like community, like a sacred community, uh, ones that, who are followers. That, that would kind of be another good way of understanding the church. There's lots of metaphors. We'll talk about those later. There's, there's family, there's bride, there's body. Those kind of help us to understand the organic rather than the organizational side of the church. So we want to try to look at the scriptures and come up with a more biblical definition of the church. But in doing so, we're not going to be able to write it out in one sentence, period. We're going to need like a few sentences because the Bible uses eh, a few paragraphs to actually define what the church is all about, Okay. So here are just some things that um, we'll we'll share to to get us going. Let's look at John chapter 10, verse 16, and we're going to do some fast flipping. So if you're not used to flipping fast through the pages of the Bible, you're going to have to kind of get an electronic gizmo or learn. Okay, so we're going to go to John 10, 16. It says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there is one flock, one shepherd. Okay, I'm not going to get into a lengthy discussion about Israel and the church, but I'm just going to share this verse. I'll give you a couple of those. You can write down Romans 11. You can write down Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And what you'll discover if you look at this, pa- passages like this, there's one shepherd, there's one people of God through all of time, but there's two flocks. There's Israel and there's the church. Israel is the people of God. The church is the people of God. The church didn't replace Israel. Israel was blessed by God, had certain unique benefits and blessings that were transferred to the church. Israel was best blessed by God, had certain benefits and blessings that were not transmitted to the church. Let me give you some examples. Under the old covenant, God's blessings included land. We don't get that. It's not like, oh, you're a Christian. Here's your three-acre parcel. And if you happen to sell it, you get it back every 50 years in the year of Jubilee. No. But land promises are part of the Old Covenant. Fertility. Some of you have many kids. That's not because you're under the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, that was one of the signs of God's blessings. New wine. Oil. Security from war. Political stability. Those were things that God used to express his blessing and his presence to old covenant, those don't transfer to the new covenant. We tend to think more about spiritual blessings, right? But 
It's not like there's two different people of God. There's one people of God. So we talk about continuity between the people of God, seed promises, the Messiah, um, grace, okay? In my presence, don't get me upset. It's not going to be a pretty scene if you get me upset. One of the things that gets me really upset is when people say the old covenant was about the law and the new covenant was about grace. I would say that's more than garbage. It's heresy. But I was taught that growing up. It's about law here. It's the age of the law. Now it's the age of grace. No, it's always been about grace. God was gracious with Abraham. He was gracious with Isaac. Like these guys were very dysfunctional people. They needed grace just like we do. God was gracious with Israel. God's gracious with us. It's all about grace. God expresses his requirements, his ways of working with us differently under both covenants. There's stuff about law under the old covenant that doesn't apply to us, but it's just really bad thinking to think that Jesus somehow invented grace or God just decided uh, sometime between Malachi and Jesus, I'm going to go with the grace mode now. The law thing hasn't been working. It's always been about grace, okay? So um, the church is ethnically diverse. Israel wasn't. So there's a continuity of people of God throughout all of history, but there's discontinuity between Israel and the church. Okay, a third point. It's not a denomination or an association. Those are human constructs. I'm not opposed to denominations in and of themselves. I think there's a lot of bad ones out there. I'm not opposed to associations in and of themselves. I think there's a lot of bad ones out there. And there's some good ones. So I'm not opposed to those things, but they aren't the church. The church is something different. In the Bible, there is, well, pretty much the beginning of every epistle, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians, the letter to the church in Thessalonica, and then in Revelation, the letter to the church at Laodicea, the letter to the church, you know. There are local churches clearly mentioned in the Bible. So you ask the question about local churches. So there's local churches, but then there's Jesus prays for, in John 17, unity in the church. And if you go to Revelation 20 and 21, and it talks about the new heavens, the new earth, and the bride of Christ, there's no neighborhoods in heaven. There's just one church. So when we say church, we can rightly be speaking of the universal church, or we can be speaking of the local church. So just in, the, in, in context, we need to determine we need to make, make clear what we're talking about. So there is one universal church through all of time. And then the church expresses itself in local assemblies. By the word, ecclesia can also mean assembly because this is the Greek word that was selected in public assemblies, political assemblies. This was the word that the New Testament writers borrowed from culture to apply to the church. Now, uh, the, the best analogy I can give you, it's a rough one, is the humanity. So there's humanity. There's humanity through all of time, every human that will ever be born and live, right? And then there's the humans that are alive right now. And then there are households within humanity. So there's the rocks. There's the Russells. So there's households. And some households are big, some are composed of one person. So in the same way, the church is like, humanity, and then there's individual families, you could say, 
that make up the church. Somebody looked, Josie, you looked like you had a question or a comment, something profound to share with us. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. We are. Yeah. Jesus Yes. So let me just say this. We are called out of the world. But that's just one aspect of what it means to be part of a church. It's not a, it's not a complete definition. I think you're referring to John 5, right? Where Jesus is talking about those that the Father has given me. All right, now, I, this is just a little historical thing, but I want to write a word up here that is often misused. <coughs> Catholic. Or Catholicity. This will just be helpful to you if you're like reading literature on this, or you're reading the Apostles' Creed or something like that. Uh, there's lots of denominations in the world, you know that. There's Baptists, there's Presbyterians, there's... Catholics, there are um, united churches, there's the Churches of Christ, and on and on and on. Most of them have biblical names, most. Okay. Presbyterian comes from presbyter, that's a Greek word. United, Jesus prays for his church to be united, John 17. Um, Baptist, some guy named John the Baptist, right? So, Denominations pick words or ideas from the Bible and they name themselves after them. Harvest, fields are wet into harvest, Bible, it's our authority, right? But that doesn't mean these words are bad. But the problem is Catholic, the word Catholic in recent history has tended to be reduced down to a denominational label, but that's not really the meaning of it. The word Catholic simply means universal. So you may have read old versions of like the Apostles' Creed. It says there's one Catholic church, and if it's ever read in an evangelical church, everyone's like, that's heresy. Right? But it's being used in the old way, like with a small c. So in that sense, we are Catholic. We're very Catholic, with a small c. Meaning that we believe we're part of a universal church. We're not the only game in town. We're not the only game in Canada. The association of churches we're part of is not the only association in the world that God is blessing. So we can say we're, a, we're Catholic, but we don't put a capital C on it because then it becomes like a denominational title. And then if you throw Roman in front of it, it becomes a denominational title as well. Okay? So I'm just throwing that out there because when we talk about the universality of the church, you'll often hear writers speak of the Catholicity of the church. And if you don't understand the meaning of that word, that can be kind of confusing for people. The local church, then we could say, is an expression of the universal. And let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is really uh, a, a kind of an important passage looking at verses 12 and 13 where it, it speaks about kind of the, the means or maybe a, a better word would be the instrument whereby we are brought out of the world into the church of Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. 
For just as the body is one and has many members, we all understand, we all understand that, right? So lots of people, but it's one body. All members of the body, though many, are one body. So I, I just find that kind of cute or humorous because he's saying it one way, then spinning it around the other way, then kind of bringing it back at you. It's like you really got to, you know this, right? Uh-huh. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. This is spirit baptism. This is why, gently and graciously, we very much disagree with any Christian that says baptism in the Holy Spirit comes at some point after conversion. I know you don't mean this, but what you're kind of saying, if you've read this passage, is you're not really part of the church yet. So we believe that every true believer is baptized in the spirit in all of his fullness on the day that they are converted. And you don't have to wait for a subsequent installment of the Holy Spirit. We're all filled with the spirit positionally. We don't all live as if we are day by day. Some days you might, I mean, you really got it together. You're surrendered. You're laid bare before the Lord. Other days, it's kind of you running the ship. And you're not very filled at all. But positionally, you still are. So the, the Spirit says, we, for in one Spirit, we were all, speaking to the whole church, baptized into one body. What kinds of people? Is this like really all? Well, in case anybody tries to mess with the word all here, he throws another phrase in so that you're very clear it's all. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, in case you try to mess with that, he gives it to you again, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So I, I, I'm just going to go with the scripture on this. All true believers are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that's how you know a person is a believer. They've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. When I say no, I'm not referring to eyes, ears, mouth, touch kind of knowing. I'm talking about the spiritual dimension that's part of every true believer that knows truth and error, right and wrong, the moral conscience that's alive in you, your soul, the part of you that communes with God, all of that. Okay? So regeneration and spirit baptism are initiations into the church. So we're regenerated through the work of Christ and we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. So the church is really uh, an organism in the scriptures. In, in modern culture, we tend, to refer, we tend to think of the church more as a, an organization. And uh, you know, sometimes we struggle with language. Let's be honest. Our language is not always the greatest language. But it's our language, so we struggle with it. But I'm always thinking about this. How can we make our language better? What's some better language to communicate things? But let's think about some language that may not be helpful. I'm not saying it's sinful. just may not be totally helpful. I'm going to church. Maybe not all that helpful. I attend harvest. I'm a member of Harvest. I'm on staff at Harvest. Where do you work? I work at Harvest. 
you see what I'm saying? We tend to use a lot of language that drives home the point that the church is an organization. It's like going to the mall. It's like being a member of the Kiwanis. Not a bad thing. But I think what it, it tends to do is it like diminishes, 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 diminishes our view of the church as a living, breathing organism. And we just need to be a little bit careful about that. So the church is an organism. How do we know that? know that? Well, since the advent of the church at Pentecost, the church has dedicated herself to apostolic teaching, to fellowshipping with one another, to practicing water baptism, to celebrating the Lord's Supper, to worshiping publicly, to meeting people's tangible needs. Like there's, a, there's an emphasis on relationships and mutual caring and growing and teaching and remembering certain things. That's the kind of language you would use of a person. So when you look at what the church is doing in the Bible, it's doing the kind of things that people do. It's not doing the kind of things that organizations do. The metaphors of the church. Okay, we listed some earlier. Body. That's more organism, not so much organizational. Bride. Family. House or household. Temple of the Holy Spirit. Flock under the watchful care of shepherds. That's all like organic kind of language. Wouldn't you agree? It's not like the charitable organization, the business, the location, the corporation. It's very organic language. Spiritual gifts. We could go back to 1 Corinthians 12 and just look at it. One body, many members, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, if the foot should say to the hand, I don't need you, I don't belong to the body, it wouldn't make it any less part of the body. The ear should say, I'm not an eye. I don't belong to the body. It wouldn't be less part of the body. So just if you just kind of read through all of that, body, body, we're all needed, we all benefit one another. Go down to verse 28. God has appointed the church apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Not everybody has all of those things is basically what 29 and 30 and 31 says. Chapter 13, we're supposed to love on each other. Love is patient, kind, doesn't boast. This is all the language of something that's alive. And so if you grew up with a background that helped you to understand that, well, you, you have a head start. But if you grew up just like attending services in a building where your parents were members, you might have to fight that notion. And here's, the, here's where the proof's in the pudding. The proof that you understand this is generally found in how you handle conflict or when you're called out, when you're challenged. Right, Because people that don't really get this, they leave in a heartbeat. They're, they're gone. Like we've had seven, 800 people come and say, this is my home and leave in 15 years, easily. They don't get this. Oh, a few of them have moved, so we'll give them a break. Right? But a lot of people know, uh, I'll let you be my pastor as long as you're being nice to me and saying what I want to hear. As soon as you step on my toes, I'm going to push back. You step on it again, I'm going to give you the middle finger. Some literally, and I'm out of here, right? 
and then I'm going to go tell everybody things that aren't true about you. So, if you understand that the church is an organism, now, obviously there's good reasons to leave churches if churches are not teaching truth and you've done everything in your power to help and you just have no power over it, but if you leave just because, well, I, I didn't get my way or I'm not getting along or, well, I wasn't really listening in the essentials class. I didn't realize that's what I was signing up for. Well, then it, it's kind of like, you know, I, I went to, I don't name the, give me the name of a gym. Good Life, is that still around? You can tell I work out at the gym all the time. Okay? <laughs> and give me the name of another one. World what is it? World okay, so World Gym. They don't have clean machines for me. I'm out of there. I'm going to Good Life. It's just like a membership. Why wouldn't you? You're paying the same amount. Why not go to the better gym? Why not? So when the, thrill, when the honeymoon period wears off, some of you are still in the honeymoon period in this church, People actually get to know you and they realize you have some warts. And you actually get to know me and realize I'm kind of a jerk at times. And someone else doesn't remember your name. Dorothy. Um, You're out of here, right? People do that all the time. So that's where you can really tell. So I'm just going to the church down the street. Do you, do you see the church as a, like a spiritual family and a body that you're part of and you're invested in, or is it just something that you, you attend? And by the way, pastors are like this too. Pastors are like this. They're just waiting for the next church to call with a few more people in the seats. Or, I don't know, better pay? Better location? Pastors are like that, and they expect the people to be all like super spiritual but they've got a call from the Lord. That's the catch-all term for I don't really want to tell you why I'm leaving. The Lord's called me elsewhere. Don't, don't ask any questions. It's the Lord. Right? Just called me elsewhere. Okay. Some things to think about. So obviously uh, this passage talks about membership, but it's like a non-technical sense of membership. We're part of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12. We... Um, really don't speak much of membership in our church. We talk about being a ministry partner, being a partner ministry. The reason why we want people to make a formal declaration is purely on this very pragmatic basis. There's a lot of churches in our city. That wasn't the case in Ephesus in the first century. There's one. That wasn't the case in Corinth in the first century. There's one. So we're not looking back on 2,000 years of church history Lots of fights, lots of division. Some of that division has been incredibly necessary. Some of it's been incredibly unnecessary. So there's good reasons to split and there's bad reasons. But we got a lot of different strands and brands of Christianity, some of which, based upon the way we would read Scripture, would say, well, they call themselves Christian, but they're really not our brothers and sisters in Christ because they've denied fundamental truths, like who Jesus is or how you get to heaven or whatever it might be that's kind of important for us, one of like the big ones, right? There's a lot of different churches. So we have to have some means or some mechanism to determine who's who in the zoo. And so we have some wise processes that we ask people to humbly submit to so they can kind of be informed as to what we're about, some classes and some 
an interview and all that kind of stuff so we can kind of make sure that people that are coming in and investing in the life of our church are um, well-informed and understand the expectations. Right? And that, that makes sense on so many different levels. We have had people uh, come and say, well, I, I just want to attend. I don't want to be a member. I don't believe in membership. Okay, then what do you believe in? Oh, I just want to be part of it. Okay, well, can we ask you some questions? Oh, yeah, you can ask me questions. Okay, well, the mechanism whereby we ask people questions is our essentials class. You get to hear from us, we hear from you. So really, you're wanting the same thing, but you're just wanting it on an individual basis and not in a classroom. So that's all we're saying. We want you to kind of go through our agreed-upon processes so you can hear what we're about, and you can tell us what you're about, you may have been baptized elsewhere unless you have a Polaroid. How do we know? You may have professed faith elsewhere unless you have a recording. How do we know? We want to kind of have, have a conversation with you. So it's, it's a mechanism or a means whereby we kind of vet people or process people, and they can vet and process us. makes a lot of sense. So we're not talking really about two different things, just some people really don't want to be questioned and don't really want to hear. But we would say that when a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit, they are a member of the universal Catholic church. And then you identify with a local assembly of believers in your community. So the local ch- membership, of course, in the local church is, is kind of assumed in the New Testament. And the concept of a Christian being disconnected from a local church was completely unheard of, except in what case? What's really the only case in the Bible where a Christian, I'll put it in parentheses, is disconnected from a local church? church exactly. Church discipline. It's like, you're out. Okay, we've gone through the processes, you're out. Now, uh, humans are humans are humans. Let's not think that everything was glorious in the New Testament. Because if we go to the book of Hebrews, they must have been starting to have a bit of a problem with people not understanding the priority of participation in the life of a local church. If you look at chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, well, let's go back to verse 24. We don't just want to preach the negatives, we want to preach the positive too. So verse 24 is, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let's consider it. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's love on each other. Let's do good works together. Let's work for Christ together, right? That's that's a great call. It's a challenge. It's all motivated by a positive, by something redemptive. But verse 25 then says, well, not neglecting to meet together. And what's the next line? As is the habit of some. So evidently, even in the early church, this started to become a bit of a problem. Okay, we're on mission. We're, we're trying to stir each other up. The reason why we're here tonight, the reason why we gather together on Sundays, and the reason why we get into small groups in part is to stir each other up to love and good works. But there's some that aren't ever showing up. In fact, it's become a habit for them. It's not because they have the flu every week. So let's consider how to stir each other up, not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, meaning the end, draw near. So let's meet like more. We need more of this because it's 
The time is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. But you, you guys all live in the same culture I do, and we know that unfortunately there's many distractions and there's a lot of boredom, and some people can never, some people have been entertained their whole lives. And they expect church to be the same. I mean, you could put on, you could shoot off firecrackers in the church and they'd still be bored. I mean, you could do a reverse offering every week and they'd still be bored. <laughs> so we have some that are like that. And I, in my humanness, I get mad. In my godliness, I get sad. Because they're totally ripping themselves off of so much. So much. They're not being stirred up for love and good deeds. Like, I love the church. I love being part of the church. I remember as a small boy, the Lord saved me young. Five or six years later, my parents went through a breakup and everything else. And my family did not want to go to the church. But by God's grace, he just gave me a heart. I just kept going. I'd I'd walk to church by myself. I just loved it. I love learning and growing. And it's a totally different church than this one. But that's where God had me at the time. And I just wanted to be part of it. I've always loved the church. I don't love every, every aspect of the way churches function or our church functions. There's imperfection in the church. But the, the church, this thing, well, I erased it. That idea of the church, I love that. It's Christ's bride. So the church as, her, as an organization. So we're, we're focusing on uh, the organism side. We've t- talked over here. This is the organi- organism, right? So this is the, what we've talked about. This is like the, the body we're talking about. And it's, it's actions in the world. Whenever people gather together, though, there's a need for organization. So let's talk a little bit about structure or organization in the church. There's structure in, there was structure in Israel. There was structure, Moses gave structure to the way the people were governed. Government, the Bible speaks positively of the concept of government. Not necessarily all governors, but the concept of government. That's important for order. The church has order to it as well. So we, went, we need to talk a little bit about the structure of the church. And let me just introduce you to a few different ways of thinking that uh, Christians have thought about the church. Some would say the church was founded on one person. And his name was Simon Peter. Peter made a confession. He, un- he identified Jesus correctly. So Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. So some have suggested the rock is Peter himself. Others believe it's the confession. So we believe it's the confession. That's what's solid about that episode. It's the confession that Peter made that is the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ is the son of God. And uh, nevertheless, there are some that would state that Jesus is going to build his church on that. Problem is there's nothing else in the rest of scripture that indicates that or supports that or adds to that or fleshes that out or illustrates that or on and on and on. But when we go to Acts 2, which is a record of the church's birthday. So you can go to Acts 2. 
the church was birthed, you could say, after the resurrection of Christ. So in Acts 2, they're meeting together. Pentecost, from the word 50, 50 days after the resurrection, they're celebrating the Jewish festival of Pentecost, and they're all together, and the Holy Spirit shows up in force, and lots of awesome things happen, fire descending, and people speaking in languages they've never learned, all that kind of stuff. That's when the church was birthed, and there's a whole description of people that have come from different parts of Asia that became part of the church, and Peter stands up and addresses the church, and there's just the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And then in verse 42, they start meeting together, and as I mentioned earlier, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, and so forth, and they kept doing it. So that's like the birthday chapter of the church, is Acts chapter 2. In this chapter, it's clear the church was not founded on a man. It's founded on the presence of God converting people and drawing them to himself through the gospel. So while uh, the church is primarily an organism, there's organizational aspects that characterize each church. So as we start to read through the book of Acts, okay, we, you always want to be careful with Acts. This is, this is a key. Some of you already know this. You've heard it maybe a hundred times. For some of you, you've never even thought about this before. But this is really crucial. You should like write this in the title page of Acts in your Bible. Acts is a history book. It's recording accurately what's taking place in the early church, in the early days of the early church. By definition, what is history? It's a description of what happened. It's not a prescription for what should happen. You guys hear that? So Acts is describing, not prescribing unless there's something in Acts where someone with apostolic authority under Christ is saying something that's prescriptive or later in the New Testament something that we see in Acts is being fleshed out through apostolic teaching telling us that it's prescriptive so it's very helpful to understand this because a lot of people they go through oh this is what happened this is how it should happen really uh, I don't think so. So we need to be careful with that. Um, nevertheless, in Acts, if we go to Acts chapter 8, we see the church. Okay, look at the first part. So Saul approved of his execution. So this is when Saul's still not a nice guy. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And all who were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This is just, this is not like the primary purpose of this verse, but I'm just bringing you to this verse because we see that the great commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28 to go to these regions has actually come about. It's happening. The church is expanding beyond Jerusalem into Judea. And into Samaria. So it's expanding. Now, go back to Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And 
verse 1 to 7. So in those days, the disciples were increasing in number. A, a complaint was being brought by the Hellenist. What's a Hellenist? S- someone who's been Greekified, basically. Arose against the Hebrews. So it's basically, in their mindset, everyone that wasn't a Hebrew. Although there were lots of people in other parts of the world that weren't Greekified. Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So they had a program in place. It was daily. They distributed, distributed food daily. So they had a program. We're not opposed to programs. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So they picked out seven men of good repute. Some say these are the first seven deacons. I don't know. It doesn't say they're deacons. Maybe they're deacons. Maybe they aren't. But they're just guys serving. Full of the spirit and of wisdom and appointed them to this duty. So we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So here we have a division of labor early in the church. And it arose from a need. We need some of you to hand out loaves of bread. We need some of you to pick up your Bibles and preach the bread of life. So there's a division of duties early in the church. So now we see as the church growing, there's some addition of some like organization to the church. They're starting to structure things up a little bit. In Acts chapter 246, in Acts chapter 3 verse 1, and in Acts chapter 12 verse 12, they're meeting. So they meet in homes. They meet in the synagogue. Those are two places that were identified. Now, many of you have probably heard of the, like the house church movement. Christians, well, it's not biblical. We just had, I just had someone tell me this last week. It's not biblical to meet in a building. You're supposed to be meeting in houses. Why? Because it says so in Acts. Oh, that's prescriptive? Well, why aren't we meeting in synagogues then? Shahar HaShemayim down in Giles. Let's go. They're meeting in houses because that's where they had to meet. I don't think God's particularly concerned about the style of structure that you're meeting in. Who cares? If there's enough room in your house for a church to meet, go for it. You'd have to have an awfully big house to pack everybody here in. Some in the early church were worshiping categories. Yeah, by the second century. By the end of the first century, they're meeting in the graves. So we could go down to heavenly rest. That's really spiritual. So if there's going to be a house church movement, why isn't there a cemetery church movement? Why isn't there a synagogue church movement? See, people love to try to do little gimmicky things to try to think of themselves as purists. Like, we're the purists. We're meeting in houses. Really? Go for it. What are you going to do when you outgrow that? Oh, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to make disciples. Because you don't want to outgrow your house church because then you're not biblical anymore like the rest of us. It's just stinking thinking is what it is. And it's really not, I don't have a lot of time for that kind of conversation. So early in the church, they met in homes. They met in the synagogue. But really, whatever. They're just meeting in places they could meet. And the church develops two offices. We're not talking about like 10 by 10 rooms with fluorescent lights, a desk, and a laptop. We're talking about roles. And these two offices are identified as a leadership and service positions. So leaders, they're called, they didn't just use one word, they called them elders. It's a Greek word attached to that. They called them overseers. And 
because the elders and overseers, I want you to hear this very clearly, because the elders and overseers function in a shepherding capacity, and the word pastor means shepherd, there's at least one instance in Acts where they're called pastors. But really the purer term for the office is elder overseer. The pastor is more like a function of that office. But we use those words interchangeably. I'll give you some references. You can look them up. Acts 20, 17. Acts 13, 1. Philippians 1, 1. The key one is 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 8. 1 Timothy 5, first part of the chapter. 2 John 1. And then uh, deacons, which it's not like a great word because they just... Do you remember that word ecclesia I wrote up here earlier? So deacons, all they did was they took like the Greek word diakonos. They didn't even translate it for us. They just like transliterated it. So the transliteration is when you have a word like this, and more or less you just transfer the letters into another language, more or less. So you get kind of a similar letters, but you don't actually know what the meaning of the word is. Whereas if you were to take the word diakonos, that's the male, or diakonai, that's the female, and translate it, it means servant. So there's deacons, and at least one instance of a deaconess in uh, Romans 16.1. Phoebe is called a diakonai. In Greek, you change the ending. That's feminine. And... The os is the male. So there's at least one instance in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. There's a list of qualifications for deacons as well. So the two distinguishing characteristics, you might say, what's the difference? Well, there's quite a significant difference. So if you look at the, the descriptions in the New Testament of these two offices, they both have to know the scripture. The household has to be in order. They have to be mature in faith, all that kind of stuff. But an elder is required to required to exercise hospitality. That's, that's one. Now, we need to put aside our old school idea of hospitality. Usually when we use the word hospitality, we think, come on over for tea and a muffin. That's not hospitality. Hospitality is befriending the stranger in the New Testament. Hospitality is not me hanging out with Josie. She's already my sister in Christ. Hospitality is somebody comes in off the street, they're a stranger. To be hospitable is to befriend the stranger. So one of the qualifications of an elder, and it kind of makes sense because he's representing the church, is to be able to connect with and demonstrate love to a stranger. So if you're like a super introvert, you don't qualify as an elder. You don't want to hang out with, you're scared of strangers, then you're not an elder. Like, do everybody a favor and go teach in a seminary. Don't pastor a church. That's the one qualification. And the second qualification is he must be apt to teach. You're like, you already said that. No, I didn't say that. I said both the deacon and the elder need to know scripture. But the elder must be apt to teach it. Now, We're not saying he needs to be able to preach a 40-minute, Western-style, English 
monologue like I would do on a Sunday morning. That's just a, like a, a, a means of communicating information. There's other ways to teach. It could be a small group or one-on-one or whatever. But we require this. Mark has to be able to teach. He's one of our elders. Glenn has to be able to teach. He's one of our elders. If they don't teach, they're not sitting in our elders' council. Might be a really nice guy. He's not sitting in our elders' council. He has to be able to teach. You ask him a question, he has to be able to give you an answer. So this is important. And the third qualification is he must be a qualified male. Is this being recorded? Yes. So in First First Timothy, it says that I do not permit uh, a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And the reason for that is given, we don't have to guess, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. doesn't say because Eve screwed up first. doesn't say because women aren't smart. doesn't say because men are better. It's creation order. It actually has tied to something before the fall. It's creation order. So we believe in female preachers and female teachers, but they can't teach men. So we believe there's women in our church that are gifted as preachers and teachers, but they can't preach and teach to men. And the office of elder, which requires teaching or public teaching of the word, well, how, how do you have a female elder in a church who's not permitted according to scripture based on creation order to preach and teach the word, doing it, and still hold the office? Now, you should probably know this because you're going to read about it on everybody's blogs. Uh, comp. This is complementarian. E or I. Whenever I write on a board, I spell things wrong. Yeah. And... egalitarian. These are the two dominant views today. I actually like these views. I think they're both honest views, kind of. It's not like pro-life, pro-choice, or pro-life, anti-life. We're, we're like trying to one-up the other group. Now, by the way, I'm absolutely 100% pro-life. I'm just saying that, that both the titles are not helpful. These are actually helpful titles in this particular situation. So complementarians basically believe that um, men and women complement each other, but they're different. They are very different. But they're complementary. So men and women complement each other in marriage. They complement each other in the church. There is neither Jew nor uh, Greek, slave nor free. Everybody's equal under Christ. So they complement each other in the church. Everybody's, if you're a Christian, you're 100% Christian. You're 100% valuable. Okay, don't let your humanness, even as you're listening to me teach on this stuff, whisper, or the devil whisper lies into your ear that's saying what he's really saying is, if I'm a female, I'm less than. I'm not saying that. Bible doesn't say that. If that's what you're thinking right now, it's stinking thinking. It's not what I'm saying. We complement each other, but we're different. 
and there's different rules. There's different rules in marriage for men and women. We're not the same. The husband is the head of his home, even if he's not particularly good at it. He is. Male pastor, elders, overseers are the heads of the church, even if there might be women out there that are better at it. doesn't matter. Do you think some of you would be a better prime minister than Justin? No. <laughs> doesn't matter. He's the prime minister. The cop that pulled you over last week to give you the speeding ticket, do you think some of you might be better at upholding the law than him or her? Maybe. doesn't matter. They're an officer. You're not, right? So just apply that same understanding to marriage in the church, and it will be very helpful for you. The problem is people don't want to do that. They want to do it with government. Okay, we've got to go with that. Municipal government. Oh, my kid, of course, he's got to listen to his teacher. He's a kid. But we're not going to go that route in the church. And I would just say the reason why there's resistance to that is because God was right in what he said in Genesis chapter 3 about the conflict that arises between men and women as a result of sin. So ladies in the church, graciously, let me just say this to you. Every time you buck your husband's authority if you're married, Every time you buck the authority of males in the church, you are actually just living out what God said you would do in Genesis chapter 3. And guys, every time you go passive, I don't want to lead. I'll just let her, she's got a stronger personality. She's more gifted than me. I'll just sit in the back or I'll sit on my hands. I'll let her, I don't want to pick a fight. Every time you do that, you're just living out Genesis chapter 3. Every time you get abusive, you get rough and tough with your wife because you think, well, if I'm a tough guy, she's going to follow me. Every time you do that, you're just living out Genesis chapter 3. So on one hand, you can't help it. But on the other hand, Jesus is there to help you. And you need to be obedient to his word. The first thing you need to do is believe it. When you believe it, you begin to value it. And when you value it, you start to live it. And when you live it, it's actually pretty cool. So that's complementarianism you can kind of tell that I'm in favor of that. Egalitarianism is, comes from the word equal and basically means no, we're equal in every single way, including functionally. There's absolutely no difference whatsoever. Nobody's in charge. It's kind of like a democracy. In marriage, it's a democracy of two. And in the church, it's a democracy of how many, ever, many people show up on Sunday. So uh, those are the two views. Our church is complementarian, not because it's an easy position. This is the easy position. I, it would be easier for me to be a Canadian pastor and be egalitarian. Far easier. We're complementarian as a church and as a movement. And we don't apologize for that. Because we believe God has said it. So we're not going to apologize for God. Far be it from us to apologize for God. Because we're con convinced about that. Okay? Um, so in our church, this means that males lead in the home. And uh, males provide elder oversight in the church. We have female leaders in all other areas of the church. Okay? On staff, in all different team leader roles. We have female deacons and male deacons in our church. So that's a little bit about the structure of the church. And then let's talk a bit about forms. Now, um, I need to make a f one more comment, and it's this. The whole spiel about complementarianism and egalitarianism 
wasn't given merely because it's true, although I think it is true. It was given because it works. But more importantly, it reflects God himself on two, in two ways. Would you say that uh, God the Father is fully God? Yes. Fully? Yes. Okay, would you say that God the Son is fully God? Yes. Would you say that God the Holy Spirit is fully God? Okay, so they're all God. They all possess all of the attributes of God. We're on the same page. Anybody want to debate that? Yes. <laughs> Josie's like, yes, no. Okay. <laughs> do they do the same thing? No. Does Jesus not surrender himself to the will of the Father? Yes. Does the Spirit not get sent by the Son? Yes. Okay. So right there, you have equality of being, and you have inequality of function. Period. So why would we have a problem with that in the church? We're equal under Christ, but there's inequality in function. In a marriage, we're equal under Christ, but we're not equal in function. Now, I emphasize that because I want to talk to you about ways that churches are governed. And these are just three catch-all phrases. You can throw some other names in here too. But the, the three forms that churches are generally governed are historically called Episcopal, Presbyterian, and Congregational. Now, don't think of any of these as denominational titles. So if you might think of a Presbyterian church, that's not what we're talking about. These are just definitions for how churches are governed. So Episcopal churches are churches that are governed by Bishops or overseers or priests or deacons that are can be in or outside of your church. So it could be, so an example of this, the most obvious example of this is the Roman Catholic Church. So no matter what Roman Catholic Church you're in, no matter what country, at the end of the day, there is one super boss. It's the Pope. So he could... He could walk down to some church in rural Mozambique, and he is the boss, right? So it's an Episcopal form of government. This is just a historical word used for it. It's actually from the word elder, but anyway. Churches that tend to be func function this way tend to be in formal denominations. So I just want, you to, want to help you with this, too. Technically speaking, a denomination is not a gathering of churches, Technically speaking, a, a denomination is a gathering of churches and the central office or overseers generally own the churches or have direct authority over the churches or appoint or ordain, whatever it might be, the leaders of those churches. So it's like a, you could be part of a denomination of 100 or 5 million and there's like a, somebody's at the top outside of your local church that's, in a sense, controls you, positively or negatively. So there's uh, the Roman Catholic Church's most notable example. What would be another kind of notable example of this? Exactly, the Anglican Church. So there's like the, what do they call him, the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think. So he's like the head guy, right? And um, some Methodist churches historically were organized this way. Then there's... 
Presbyterian or elder-led churches. So presbyter, word for elder, a a Presbyterian-governed church is a church where the elders govern or rule or lead. Now, those can be two, three different, like, sub-groups. In some churches, elders lead, maybe by example, by suggestions, by being a good role model. In other churches, they rule from A to Z everything. In other churches, they kind of govern, they kind of organize. But the point is, is we'll just capture those all together. The church is, is uh, overseen by an internal body of people called elders or overseers in the church or pastors, whatever you want to call it. And a congregationally led church is where the, there's no hierarchy. There could be people with different roles, but everybody in theory and in practice who's a member of that church has an equal say. So the best, the best way of um, defining that politically would be to say that's a democracy. Congregational churches vote on stuff. Or, even if they don't vote, everyone sort of thinks they have like an equal say. So, congregationally governed churches can include Baptist churches, but Baptist churches can also be Presbyterian in nature. Brethren churches can be congregational or Presbyterian in nature. Congregationalist churches are congregationalist in nature. Presbyterian churches are Presbyterian in nature. United churches are Presbyterian in nature. Most Reformed churches are Presbyterian in nature. Harvest Bible chapels are Presbyterian in nature. So we believe that the elders rule the church. So we don't vote on things. We, the elders actually lead. They make decisions on behalf of the body. And there's a lot of practical reasons for that. Some of them, if you're a real practical thinker, some of them might be you can make decisions a lot quicker with a small body of people than floating everything out into the church. Another question is, well, what in, in truly congregational churches, everybody should actually weigh in on every single thing. Well, where do you draw the line? Like, do you, do you call a meeting for whether we're going to buy leaded gas or unleaded gas? Do you... Do you call a meeting whether we're going to get our, I don't know, lawnmower from John Deere or Kubota? Like, where do you draw the line? But in truly congregational churches, they tend to be smaller because everybody has a say in everything. So the guy that's been saved for a day and a half has equal say to the guy that's read the Bible 50 times, preached 100 times, has been a Christian for 30 years, right? So we're just... That's, there's some pra- pragmatic problems with that, but we just believe the church calls the elders of the church to lead. So we're complementarian, and we're also elder-ruled. Uh, Not ruled in a negative sense. In other words, rule sounds really negative, but sometimes when you say elder-led, people think, oh, you guys make the suggestions. No, we actually make the decisions. So rule is probably a better word. Like, I still don't like the word. Well, it's actually in the New Testament. Let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor. So we're just using biblical language on that one. Okay? Now the ordinances of the church. So by the way, the reason why this is important is if you have a body of believers, it's the same thing we talked about in marriage and a trinity. 
we're all equal in being. We're all equal in being. But let's say these are elders. We're not equal in function. I, I think this is important because uh, I've just seen a lot of emotional reaction to this. I'm like, why are you having an emotional reaction to it? If you want to have a theological reaction to it, I would respect that. Okay, I want to take you to some verses. I don't understand them or I don't think your teaching's correct. Okay, let's have that conversation. But if it's like, I don't like it emotionally, well, why don't you like it emotionally? It's actually how the world works. But not everything in the world works well. It's how God works. That's kind of convincing. So in many ways, when a church functions in a complementarian elder-led way, and I don't want to take this too far, but they are reflecting the image of God in their structure. Did you hear that? Galatarians would hate me for this. But I would say, in a marriage, when the husband is actually lovingly leading not just making suggestions, but leading his marriage, he's reflecting the image of God in that relationship. When elders lead the church, they're reflecting the image of God in the church. Because God is not equal in being and equal in function. The Holy Spirit submits, same word used of males and females in Ephesians 6, submits to the direction of the Son, and Jesus submits to the will of the Father. What's our key passage for that? Philippians 2. The humbling of Christ, right? Submitted himself. So we're just doing the same, same idea. It doesn't prove the point so much as it illustrates the importance of it. So if this is a course on who we are, and not just a course on what's true, I'm emphasizing this stuff because this affects who we are. It affects how we interact. It affects how we make decisions. It affects how we treat each other. So when elders lovingly leave the church and people that are members of that church graciously submit to the leadership of the elders, they actually are reflecting the, the very thing that father and son Son and Holy Spirit are reflecting. Husband and wife are reflecting. I just think that's all a beautiful thing. But uh, the world would have us think that it's discriminatory because we have a very flatline view of human rights. We have a terrible view of equality. Okay, we don't even define that word. Um, we have a, a poor view of decision making. We have a crapped out view of authority on and on and on. And all those false notions feed in to the emotional frenzy that people often put forward whenever you talk about husbands leading their wives or elders leading churches or whatever it might be. And it's, it's an emotional thing. It's not, it's not governed by Scripture. Now, again, there are some people out there that are good theologians and they've studied the Bible and they believe otherwise. Okay, I respect that. But most people are having an emotional reaction to it. Well, that doesn't work that way in my marriage. Okay, well, I know it might not work that way in your marriage. That's because there's sin in your marriage. It's not because God was wrong. Or the Bible doesn't say that. Or it's because there's sin in 
the husband or the wife or both, right? That's the purpose of it. So we're just trying to reclaim some of the things that we think are important because they benefit us. So we're going to talk about ordinances next. Ordinances are essentially spiritual patterns. I'm trying to come up with some a little more generic language. They're, uh, they're uh, practices ordained or given by God that endure. Some churches identify several. <clears throat> so in Roman Catholicism, they talk about ordinances. These are sometimes called sacraments. I'll just say this. I'm not like opposed to the word sacrament, but I'm uncomfortable with it. The reason why I'm uncomfortable with sacrament is because historically a sacrament meant a means of grace. What does that mean? So think of a needle. And inside of that needle is grace. And this guy needs grace. So I stick the needle in his arm and I, I give him an injection of grace. Sacramentalism historically had that idea. You do certain things, they are means of grace. So I take the communion biscuit, mm, I get a jolt of grace. I take the communion, I get a jolt of grace. Doesn't matter what I'm thinking, how much I'm understanding, what my heart condition is. Literally, it dispenses grace. So the Catholic Church is heavily sacramental. Marriage is a sacrament. Ordination is a sacrament. Foot washing is a sacrament. Extreme unction. So ministering to the sick, especially at the point of death, that's a sacrament. Penance is a sacrament. Baptism is a sacrament. Communion is a sacrament, the seven sacraments. And what those things do is they give you grace. They literally dispense grace into your life. So this is why you have people in those traditions running around, living like total unbelievers, but they walk the aisle to get grace because that's what they've been taught. I go to the front because I'm getting grace in the biscuit or in the communion juice or whatever it might be, or I'm dying. I need, a, I need an infusion of grace. So I call the priest and he comes performs the rite of divine or um, uh, extreme unction, and I get grace. So it's all about getting grace through these means. Now, we would feel uncomfortable with that view, but I just want you to be aware that that is a view out there. So we would see, in a soft way, we think the ordinances are means of grace. But they're means of grace because, more importantly, they are symbols of grace. They are symbols of grace. And just kind of follow me on this because I'm probably going to forget it if you ask me to repeat it. So they're symbols of grace. And because they're symbols of grace, when we think of them as symbols of grace, we have a renewed encounter with God's grace. And when we have a renewed encounter with God's grace... Then in that sense, you could say in a soft way, it's a means of grace. But it's not some automatic injection. It's, it's more about calling to mind the presence of God or asking God to manifest his presence or humbling yourself under God. The Catholic Church would say infant baptism is a means of grace. So it makes total sense. If baptism is a means of grace, then you need to get baptized as young as possible, even when you're not conscious of it. So it makes sense within the system to baptize babies. It makes a lot of sense because it's a means of grace. And why would you not want to get the injection as soon as possible? It's like you're born. 
there's some epidemic plague going around, you go get your shot. Why would you not do that? Infant baptism in other traditions becomes more of a sign. And so moving away from that view, infant baptism is like a sign and a seal. So the emphasis is upon the sign and the seal. It's kind of like the equivalent of uh, circumcision. It's a sign and seal of the old covenant. So in a lot of reformed churches, you're baptized young. You're like, that's Catholic. No, it's not Catholic. They wouldn't say it's a means of grace. It's a sign and seal of covenantal grace. And then a baptism uh, in other views, in other churches, baptism, this is one of the sacraments or ordinances, is an impartation of grace upon faith. So uh, the carbs aren't here, but they were raised in Church of Christ. Anybody here come from Church of Christ? Okay, so Church of Christ, they wouldn't say baptism is a means of grace, but it, it kind of saves you. Sort of, kind of, right? So the idea is that baptism imparts God's grace to you. you know, you've exercised faith, but baptism imparts God's grace to you. And then the fourth view is that we, and this would be our view, that it must be believer's baptism. So we're not focused so much on the age, but you need to be old enough to believe. So we call it believer's baptism. We're not so sloppy as to call it adult baptism you might not be an adult, but you're a believer. So we call it believer's baptism, and it's a symbol of salvation, but it also is more than a symbol. It's a symbol of salvation, and it is the means by which a believer identifies with the reunion they have with Jesus Christ. So I, I fear that sometimes evangelicals are a little bit too simplistic. Oh, it's just a symbol. Well, it is a symbol, but what's it symbolizing? <laughs> it's just about remembering something. Well, you can just say it and remember it. It's a means of dramatic union with Christ. Okay? So <clears throat> I have a bunch of scripture passages written down here. Infant baptism, the key texts are often looked at are Acts 22.12, Titus 3.5, 1 Corinthians 6.11. By the way, the mode is generally sprinkling, generally. Infant baptism, when it's a sign and seal, they point to Genesis 17, 7, Acts 2, 39, Acts 16, 15. They tie it very closely into circumcision. They say, okay, circumcision is a sign and seal under the old covenant. Baptism is the sign and seal under the new covenant. It's generally sprinkling, sprinkling or pouring. Baptism as impartation of grace upon faith, Acts 2.41, repent and believe, kind of for the remission of sins. Um, Romans 6, 1 to 11, it can be sprinkling or immersion depending on the denomination you're in. And believer's baptism as a symbol of salvation and identification of union with Christ, key passages would be Luke 23.43, John 3.23-24, Acts 2.4, and Romans 6, 1 to 11. And generally in those kinds of churches like ours, it's immersion or partial immersion in some, depending on disabilities or that kind of thing. So that is um, 
the, the first view is heavily sacramental, and then it kind of grades downward from there into a view that isn't, we're not totally, again, it's not like it's a bad word. If you use it, we're not going to shoot you. But I don't really like that word. One of our elders used it a couple weeks ago, and I'm like, don't use that word because it kind of miscommunicates something to some people. Maybe they come from more of a sacramental background. So which theological belief and mode is biblical? Well, I think the fourth one clearly has the weight of evidence. Uh, Here's five reasons. Number one, saving faith is always a prerequisite to salvation. Uh, Secondly, in the New Testament, examples of baptism, they're always believers. That's kind of important. Uh, You know, someone once said you're as likely to find infant baptism as the Bible as you are to find a unicorn, right? But then someone told me a while ago there actually were unicorns. I don't know, maybe there were. They went extinct? I don't know. Uh, Third, immersion best pictures the resurrection. Kind of pictures it nicely. The word baptizo, now here's where we got to be careful about, remember our etymological root fallacy? Got to be careful. Don't want to just use this as our evidence, but it, it means to sink or to dip. So a boat sinks in the ocean, they use the word baptizo. And the fifth, the reason why the circumcision thing doesn't transfer very well is because under the Old Testament law, only males were circumcised, but females were also part of the covenant. So it's not really all that transferable when men and women are both baptized under the new covenant. Okay? Do you have any comments or questions about that? The nature of baptism. Uh, We are more concerned about the meaning than the mode. Mode's important. It's not as important to us as the meaning. So we, we have had situations where someone comes to us from another church and maybe they didn't get the full dunking. But it was believers' baptism. They were thinking the same thing and professing the same thing as, as we would be professing in a full immersion. We would, we would acknowledge that as a legitimate baptism. We're not going to penalize them for lack of water, right? Uh, some churches feel uncomfortable with that. They will rebaptize you. I won't even. I don't even feel comfortable rebaptizing someone. It kind of freaks me out because I don't think rebaptism of a believer. I think to rebaptize a believer to get the mode right violates the meaning. Uh, so we just have to be a little bit careful about that. But uh, there's good people that very, very strongly <laughs> disagree. By the way, it is interesting. Who mentioned the catacombs earlier? Jack. So second century, the Christian church was meeting in the catacombs. You know, those are like hollowed out areas. They put the bodies and whatnot. And uh, you can Google this. Baptismal art in the catacombs. And it's pretty interesting that in the second century, now this is like 100 years removed from Christ, but it's still closer to Christ than we are. Baptismal pictures often pictured a partial immersion. So the person would go down into the river, up to here, and then they have a big jug of water poured over them from there down. So it it could be that's what they were doing in the New Testament era. And it would explain the use of the word immersion. It would explain the use of the language they went down into the river. 
and it would explain the symbolism and all that. Now, that doesn't mean that that's what was happening, but I think what it maybe suggests is we need to exercise a wee bit of humility in assuming that the picture, the mental picture we have in our heads of this being the only mode is what Jesus did. We don't, we don't have a Polaroid. We don't have a digital picture of it. So we just have to be a little careful of that, not to kind of overinterpret uh, the text because there's, there's some evidence that maybe they did down into the river and then you're poured from there down. And some would suggest there's a dual meaning there. There's the, um, people say, but that, that doesn't portray the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Well, what about Jesus' baptism then? Jesus wasn't portraying his own death, burial, and resurrection in his baptism. So again, you don't want to overinterpret the symbolism. I know of at least one case where someone was baptized and they held on to the tank and their hand didn't get wet. So the elders convened and had to rebaptize them. And I would just say you're elevating mode over purpose there. So we have to be careful about that. Okay? At the same time, some might say, then mode doesn't matter at all. I don't, I don't need to be baptized. Well, then you're disobeying the direct directives of Scripture. So I say this carefully because you might, you might hear it wrong, but let me just say it and I'll qualify it. There's no such thing in the New Testament as an unbaptized believer, except for the thief on the cross. Unless they took him down quick, got him baptized, put him back up. Probably didn't happen. Jesus said, you're going to be in heaven with me. Today I'll see you in paradise. So he got to heaven without being baptized. But could we not all agree, maybe that's the exception to the rule. Someone gets saved in their deathbed, you don't have to run in with a bucket of water. But the, the whole notion of, well, I'm, I don't know if I'm ready to be baptized. I don't know if I'm going to make the choice yet. I'm afraid of water. I don't want to get up front. I've been saved for so long that it's kind of pointless now. Okay, the excuses are a mile and a half long. Let me just tell you this. You're, if you've trusted in Christ, you need to be baptized, period. There's, you, don't have to, you don't have to pray about it. God's already told you, right? People are like, I'm going to pray about it. No, don't pray about it. Please don't pray about it, because that prayer could actually be an act of blasphemy. Because you're like, do you really want me to? I've already said yes. Don't pray about it. People say, I, I, I use this on people quite, have used this on people quite often. You're challenging them in an area of biblical obedience. You're like, I'm going to pray on it. I'm like, please don't. Just do it. Because praying assumes you've got to like, seek the will of the Lord or figure it out. No, just do it because he's already told you to do it. So don't play those kind of games. Okay, the Lord's Supper. This is the second. Back in the century, when you were being persecuted or something, they couldn't go in public and say, well, when I get baptized, get submerged into water and things like that in public because they're going to be targeted to be prosecuted. So they had to do it in secret or whatever. Well, they obviously exercised wisdom. You know, there's, there's this biblical principle of being as wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. You've got to exercise discretion. I would say that they did it carefully. They didn't necessarily draw attention to it, but they didn't 
you know, dip, dump their head or dip their head in a water fountain either and call it immersion. They they went to rivers and there's lots of baptismal fonts and archaeological ruins of the whole country of Israel today. And they would be baptized maybe out of sight of those that were most likely to persecute them. But they, they were baptized by immersion. If you go to Qumran, some of you have been to Qumran, there's baptismal fonts. Those, those are not Christian baptismal fonts for scenes and stuff, but there's baptismal fonts. Now, Christians didn't invent baptism, by the way. It was already being practiced as a religious rite well before that. And there's some different purposes attached to it. But they, they were fully baptized. And in a quasi-public setting, one might say. Right? We, we baptized, I mean, in the history of our church, we baptized several times at uh, Sandpoint Beach, in my pool at my last house, another person's pool, at Rondell Park, at Wheatley, um, a lot of different places, borrowed other churches. We're not hung up on a location. Now we have a building in our own tank. We can do it here, but yeah. Sorry? Where is Qumran? Qumran? Well, if this is uh, the Mediterranean, and this is Tel Aviv, and this is Israel, Qumran is here. This is the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, and the Sea of Galilee. So right here at the top of the Dead Sea, you've heard of the Dead Sea, right? Lowest place on earth all salt, right here, kind of in a deserty kind of area, is Qumran. And this was a place where the Essenes gathered. That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, in the caves, right? And if you go to the ruins there, there's big baptismal font. Uh, they're probably the size of three or four of these tables put together. They would go downstairs and baptize part of their religious rites and ceremonies. They were like a sect of Judaism, very strict, like zealots. And then other places down there, there's Masada, where you've probably heard all the story of Masada, where they were slaughtered and all that kind of stuff for their faith because they wouldn't bow to the Romans and that. So those are like different, very fundamentalist groups that believe very strongly in their faith. Yeah. Okay, let me just quickly hit the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper, uh, sometimes it's called the breaking of bread. That's fine. Sometimes it's called the common meal. That's fine. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist. That's fine. That comes from the word Eucharisto, which just means to give thanks for. Sometimes it's called communion. That's fine from the word koinonia, fellowship or fellowshipping together. And it's closely linked to what old covenant feast? The, the last, yeah, the Passover. So Jesus is actually celebrating the Passover and he reinterprets it into what we call the Lord's Supper, right? Which is the Lord passing over. So that's uh, Luke 22. The purposes of the, 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 the Lord's Supper, uh, Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 11, fundamentally are to, are to do what? They are to remember. Now when the Bible talks about remembering, it's more than just, oh, bringing my memory to life. It's much deeper than that. It's, it's like a spiritual awakening, a reawakening, or reminder of something titanically important. We tend to just think of remembering as a mental thing, but it's, it's more than that. 
like I'm communing with Christ. I'm thinking about him on the cross. I'm thinking about what he was accomplishing for me. It's not just some rite that we go through. And what's the second purpose for uh, communion in 1 Corinthians 11? Whenever we take it, we... Okay, we give thanks, but we something his death until he returns. We remember. Proclaim. So we're proclaiming it. Who are we proclaiming it to? Presumably one another, to the Lord, and maybe even to unbelievers that are present. So there's like a, it's not just me and Jesus hanging out enjoying a communion moment. I'm also proclaiming my faith to you and to others and all that kind of thing really, really important to understand. So we see it as a memorial of Christ, as an identification with a new covenant, which implies it's for believers only. In fact, we're warned to only give it to believers. As a proclamation of his death, as a proclamation of his second coming, and as fellowship with Christ. The Catholic Church says that the elements actually become the body and blood of Christ. This is called transubstantiation. They literally become it. It's the most literal interpretation of the text, but I would say also absurd. And the Lutheran view is called consubstantiation, and that means that when the person takes the body and blood, that the presence of Christ dwells in, around, under, on top of the elements. Maybe true. Might be also a little bit of an over-interpretation of the text. The memorial view <clears throat> held by Baptist Mennonites, brethren, is the elements are only symbolic. I don't believe in any of those views. I practice and believe in what's called the reformed view, which is also sometimes called the spiritual dynamic view. And the reformed view is that the elements are symbolic but they're also dynamic in that, the, hear me clearly, the presence of Christ is made effective in the believer as he or she properly partakes. So you, you often hear us talking about manifest presence around here. What we mean by that is God is everywhere. But there are certain things in the Christian life that make God's presence undeniable. We could say profound. We could say evident. We could say dynamic, and communion is one of those things. It's a moment in time when God's presence is dynamically there and we're fully aware of it if we properly participate in communion. So it's not just, oh, I'm remembering something Jesus did 2,000 years ago. This is why we call it communion. There's a dynamic aspect going on. I'm communing with Christ in the here and now. There's actually a spiritual fellowship, if you will taking place in uh, the act of communion. Okay, so uh, next week, we're going to get right in, now that I've kind of covered this stuff, we're going we're gonna to talk about the mission of the church. We're going to start to try to connect some of these dots for you, okay? So lots of information tonight. Uh, if you're a good student, you're going to want to like kind of review some of this stuff because I know for some of you, this is all review. For some of you, it's all new. For some of you, it's in between. There's a lot of information you've received. I just, want, I just would encourage you to like mentally process it, review your notes, and we'll start to help you to connect the dots between our view of the church, view of the Holy Spirit, and how we worship. 
And you're going to see, if you're thinking about this stuff, you're going to see how the stuff we've talked about tonight is going to affect your communion with the Holy Spirit. And it's most definitely going to affect your worship life, individually and as a church. Okay? So have an awesome night. Finish up the cake before you leave.